Hey guys and girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain ecosystem with Mr. Graham Wiley, who is executive chairman at the Medical Research Network, otherwise known as MRN. What a fascinating guest we have on the show for you today. Uh, a real a kind of industry pro turned entrepreneur. And, and for background, Dr. Graham Wiley graduated in pharmacology in 1982 and then medicine in 1987. He moved into the pharma industry in the late 80s, spending 10 years at Pfizer and five years at Paraxel in many different forms of clinical trial management before joining healthcare at home to create a trials division. He led an MBO to make this a separate company in 2006 and was CEO and majority owner for 16 years until September 2022, when he passed over the CEO role to one of his younger co-founders and he became executive chairman. Through that period, MRN has enjoyed an average growth rate of 35% through feast and famine and continues to be one of the fastest growing founder-led businesses in the UK so as you can tell from that biog, an incredible background and a great story in terms of a, a, in a business growth in the clinical trials space. Great family element to look out for in today's episode as well. As always, thank you for listening and subscribe and rate wherever you are. Please enjoy today's show. Graham Wiley, welcome to Molecule to Market. Good morning, Raman. Thank you very much for inviting me to come. Uh, it's great to have you here and excited to tell your story and give our listener kind of some insight into yourself. But let's start at the start. Tell us, Graham, about your journey and how you got into the sector and kind of made your way into the, the role that you're at today. Um, so talk us through some of the backstory. Okay. I was a pharmacologist originally. And after I did a pharmacology degree, I went into to study medicine. I came out of hospital practice quite fast and I joined Pfizer to run clinical trials as what they called a clinical project manager uh, back in 1989. While I was doing various clinical trials, mostly in the rheumatology world, I became interested in quality management systems, continuous improvement, uh, technology, uh, and I moved uh, with Pfizer to New York uh, in 1994 to the headquarters to run uh, a program implementing enterprise-wide patient data management systems and serious adverse event systems and stuff like that. I came back to the UK, to Sandwich in the UK, uh, about three years later, and I set up a continuous improvement department using those skills called Business Quality Development uh, for the European Clinical Research Team, and then eventually decided that uh, perhaps my fortunes were going to be better served elsewhere, and I moved to Parexcel as a medical director for Northern Europe in 1999, just before the millennium. I became, for Paroxel, I became VP of business development for Europe after time, and um, I stayed there for about three years. But eventually, I decided to strike out on my own. I was picked up by a company called Healthcare at Home to join their board to develop their specialty pharmacy capabilities for the clinical research sector, which I did. But about nine months to a year later, because they were exiting, 
I led an MBO of that new division. We created MRN as a separate entity. I became the CEO and I was in that job for 16 years, moving to the executive chairman role in September of last year. So let's take a pause there because um, you've covered the best part of 30 years pretty quickly. <laughs> and uh, I want to not expose your age, obviously, but I want to rewind back to, you obviously had a, a, a good stint at Pfizer and then obviously went, decided to go into the, into Paracel, into the CRO space. So how did you find that jump from almost being on the, on the client sponsor side uh, and then, you know, obviously going into the more uh, client servicing side of things in a, within a CRO, CRO how did you find that, I suppose, transition? Well, it's a very interesting transition. Uh, and I suited it quite well, actually, Roman, I think. I'm quite commercially minded, although I'd spent all my career at that point within R&D. It turns out that I was quite commercially minded. So it was a relatively pleasant journey for me. Having said that, I, over the years, I've mentored a lot of physicians coming in and out of the industry. And this is a difficult transition for most people to make, or many people to make. The CRO world is very fast-paced. You're busy all the time. You're selling your time as well as your expertise. And as such, it can be quite demanding and short-termist in its nature. But for me as an individual, um, I actually suited that quite well. I think the key to it, from my point of view, was I was looking to maximize the skills I already had. You know, I'm a physician. I've been running clinical trials for several years by then. So I moved into a commercial environment where the same things were being asked of me, but in a different, in a different way. So I kind of minimized the amount of change to my life by doing that, whilst learning about the new aspects of working in a CRO. It's an interesting transition and it's one that we've seen a few times on the podcast and guests like yourself that kind of make the jump. I do believe it's few and far between actually most people when they end up or start a career at, at someone like Pfizer, they tend to stay to kind of that side of the fence. So, uh, and then you you went one step further, obviously you uh, kind of mentioned the MBO. So talk us through that process and, you know, what was it like leading the MBO and, you know, from my understanding, it's a very courageous thing to do with with risk and uh, you know and kind of takes taking something that exists off someone else and then obviously deciding to expand and before we kind of go on and talk about MRN, love you to talk you through that period of life and also you know, and I'm going to bring the, your family up at some point during the the podcast but you know what what did family life look like at that time in terms of kids and be married and things like that because I presume. It was interesting, you know, dinner conversation with, with your partner to say, hey, I'm going from a, you know, a, a comfortable job and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to take on this business as CEO. Right. Well, it's a fascinating experience going through any type of deal. And this was my first deal, if you like. It was my own deal. And people I knew very well and respected who were my bosses at the time and the owner of Healthcare at Home had to negotiate with me about the management buyout. At the same time, they were saying, well, the other alternative grab is you might be made redundant because they were exiting. And you know, a lot of people in my position who, who move into an entrepreneurial life later in life 
a lot of people do it because they got Hobson's choice in front of them like that. It was a brutal experience. I mean, I've been through worse since, but at the time it was it was brutal um, because it, when you're in that type of deal making relationship, even though the amounts of money that we were talking about then were relatively small, it's um you, it's a buyer beware environment. You have to you have to be absolutely aware of the fact that you're about to take a a risk, and you have to live with it. And you have to get the best possible outcome. And we all remained good friends afterwards, but it was it was quite an experience. What was so brutal about it, if you reflect back now? Was it just the first time you'd done a business transaction of this type, or was there something? You know, was it the stress of it? Was it the hours? Was it you know <laughs> everything that comes to doing a deal? But just anything specific, you know. Any bear in mind, someone yeah. might be listening to this thinking, "Oh, fancy doing an MBO <laughs> yeah. within my business." Well, I think the thing is, you know, I'd done much bigger deals on behalf of Parix. My speciality was um, selling projects of ten million or over. All right, that's that's what I did at Parixel for a long time, and rubbing up against you know, senior executives in large pharmaceutical companies in order to do that, and of course. Anybody who's been a doctor or worked as a CRO is not unfamiliar with long hours and hard work. Now, the real, the brutality of it is the raw nature of the negotiation. Um, it's one person sitting on one side of the table saying, well, I want this. And another person sitting on the other side of the table going, well, I want that. And how do you, that's not the same as selling a very large clinical trial as a CRO pharma company. It's a completely different environment. And that was tough. It was hard to get used to the idea. How much do you compromise? How much do you not? That that was the bit that felt brutal. If you think back now to the deal that you did, the version of yourself today, Graham, what would you do differently today? Or you know, if you could kind of rewind back time and and change anything that you did, what would that be? Gosh, that's an interesting question, Ramon. As I do have an answer though, as an individual who owns a business, like almost everybody in my position, we are what you might call equity jealous. We most entrepreneurs who run their own businesses, uh, and you may well relate to this, uh, you know, like to keep as much of that business under their own ownership as possible. Um, because you're putting all the effort in, so the objective is to get as much of the returns as you can. I think at the time, I was given the option of becoming redundant and then starting again, and I didn't take that step. We did a, a tupi instead, Healthcare at Home Spanners Out as an entity, so I was never made redundant, but because of that... Healthcare at Home ended up owning more of MRN than perhaps was ideal. Now, as you know, life passes by, it's, it's been no problem. Uh, but you never know when you're going to start to feel that drive. And the, the need to reduce the total amount of equity you give away is important. But if I was advising anybody who's going to go into an MBO, I'd be to think I'd, it would be to think very carefully about how they do that. 
That's a great piece of advice, I have to say. I mean, very early on in my own business career, you know, I had no almost aspirations of building a business that would ultimately be one that, you know, would take investment from a private equity company. And, you know, in the early years, I think my wife and I had split the company up based on, you know, what was most tax efficient <laughs> that the accountant told us to do. And then it had nothing to do with, you know, I was the one working in the business every day. And, we, you know, obviously over time we, we changed you know, the, the equity structure based on the fact that, you know, it turned out there was something of value in the business. And actually, actually I was driving the business, but you're absolutely right. You know, in those early days, you don't necessarily think about it that much, which is, yeah. So thank you for for, for sharing that. And let's talk about MRN then in, in the great work that you do. So let's let's start with, you know, paint a picture of the business. So if our listener is sitting there thinking, you know, I have, I have no idea what you know, medical research network does and you know the services that they offer talk us through i suppose the the breadth and scope of the capabilities and and size of the organization if you can please okay in a nutshell mrn medical search network is a specialist cro that runs clinical trial visits in patients homes or their community that's what we do and the reason we do that is because it reduces the impact of the clinical trial on the patient's life. That in turn means, of course, they're much more likely to recruit. And because they're more likely to recruit and be retained in the clinical trial, the trial runs faster and delivers the product to market earlier, which is the core driving force behind every contract research activity on the planet, really. And is your differentiation then you do specifically do work in the homes and in the community as opposed to having, you know, huge sites set up for it? Or do you do that part as well? That is very specifically what we do. We specialize in community-based trial solutions. Any any solution that helps you bring the trial into the patient's own life, home, community, so that they can take part more easily. There's a variety of different ways of doing that, and we offer technology solutions today as well as nursing solutions. Um, and of course, it might be that we see people at work uh, or at school rather than necessarily at home. So there are many flavors of that, but that's our principal driver. Having said that, we also do what we call site professional services, taking on same nursing teams and placing them in sites helping the sites ensure that they can meet the obligations that they have, that they've signed up to when they became a site for a clinical trial. So often they are under-resourced in terms of nursing or other types of professionals. And so we can support sites, both in terms of the resources they have in the facility and also how far they can reach out into their own patient population uh, by using our nurses out in the community. And give us a sense of the scale of the organization. And I believe there's well over 300 team members within the business. And I'm assuming a global presence as well, given given the nature of what you do in your client base. Yeah. Well, we operate in, at any given time, somewhere in the region of 40 to 50 countries. We've operated over our history. We've operated in over 60. We have a large headquarters in Chicago, and then we have offices in Stuttgart and Madrid, Paris and Tokyo. And from those offices, 
we run countries as regions fundamentally and that we have a whole business-to-business network of nursing providers who are able to give us access to the nurses we need across that geography. Because ultimately, when a patient gets recruited into a study, we have no idea where they're going to live. We just know the country they're going to be in fundamentally. And then we have to find a nurse within one hour's travel time, ideally, of that patient. So to do that, you need access to a lot of nurses around the globe. So that's how we that's how we manage it. We set up we've got lots of our own nurses these days as we've reached a scale which allows us to be able to spread our own nurses efficiently through areas of high population, etc., where they're likely to get lots of recruit work, then we do that. So we control directly about 50% or thereabouts of the nurses who work for us through those routes. The others work in the countries where we are asked to go less often. But importantly, we operate exactly the same model, even if we're using a vendor in a country that, that we use only occasionally. Uh, we control that nurse that they offer us directly, day to day, so that everybody's managed in exactly the same way as if they were all employees of MRN. Congratulations on building a, an international business. Um, you know, someone that is on the journey of doing that, uh, you know, some of the locations that you mentioned, and I imagine the complexity of running an international business and the network that you have is, uh, I'm sure, uh, an operational nightmare at times, but it's, uh, it's an incredible achievement from, from where obviously you, you started it from, from, from the MBO and I do want to talk about clinical trials and, and how the world has changed in the last few years and how that's impacted you guys. But before we do that, when we had our pre-call and we met, I I was fascinated to hear, I suppose, the family connection within your organization. So, you know, love you to tell our listener a bit about the family members that are in, you know, involved in the business and and how that works, right? I'm thinking of Succession, which is my favorite show at the minute, and that's exactly what I'm hoping it's going to be like. I suspect it's not. Well, I'm, I'm not quite the same as, uh, <laughs> as the, the multi-billionaire mogul in Succession. Uh, you know, to be truthful, I mean, Succession's a great program, and I think it's quite it's quite relatable. Not because um, not because we behave that way. No, clearly, I hope not. <laughs> But actually, the, what makes great drama is you take normal experiences and exaggerate them. And that's what Succession does really well, because we it is relatable to people who run their own business. Um, we may not be talking about billions of dollars, but what happens to the next generation is an important part of the conversation in a family that, that owns a big asset like the MRN. So my wife works for us. She's the um, Chief International Development Officer. She's been working for us for 11 years. Uh, she sits on the board. She's a shareholder of the business, a very uh, effective and important member of the uh, senior executive team at MRN. Beyond that, all my children now work for us at the, in the company. When this started, we were never intended to be a family business. And, and as yet, you know, we may not turn out to be uh, a family business. If you go on um, the Institute Family Businesses website, for example, you know 
they are mostly interested in what they call G2 and G3 businesses, people whose where the businesses are already being uh, run by the second and third generation. Up until that point, you're really an entrepreneur, employ your own family. And that's that's an important distinction. Having said that, we set up the, our business 17 years ago with the intent for it to last a long time. And that is something that we have in common with much more established family businesses. Uh, if you read the HBR, which I'm sure you do around from time to time, there are some really good articles on family businesses and how they operate. And uh, actually, globally, family businesses are more successful uh, than publicly quoted businesses. And one of the main reasons for that is their very long-term view that families tend to take about how they're developing a business. Um, for me, it's been fantastic. Not only when they were younger, not only could I offer the children the opportunity to break the back of getting their first career-orientated job, but also I was offered the fantastic opportunity of watching my children work in a way that most parents never get to see. You don't. It's a side of their personality that they don't show you at home. And it's a fantastic insight. And it's been a real privilege to see the full extent of my kids and my wife's personalities come out so that I can see them at work and at home. So I would heartily recommend it. I appreciate it. it's going to be difficult. Um, there's challenges, but um, it's been a great experience. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. It's terrific to hear. And, you know, I've got friends of mine who work in their family businesses and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's almost a gift and a curse at times. And where I see, in fact, they almost have to work doubly hard, the kids anyway, to almost prove they're not getting any special treatment, <laughs> which is quite a fascinating kind of, insight that you see you know it's almost that you know we don't want to be seen as we're getting treated any any differently within the organization but i love the um the long-term view piece that you mentioned there and even something that you 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 said to me which i wrote down when we first met which was you know going from founded to sustainable business really really kind of stuck with me because i think it's a great ambition especially given the nature of what you guys do and um and then uh, i believe it was 2015 you brought I suppose a different type of family member to the table, which was World Korea, who invested in the business. So talk us through, because obviously that was, I, I believe it was eight years ago. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, talk me through what, what, I suppose, how that came about and, you know, what, what and actually some of the, I suppose the family dynamics in that, if you're able to share, you know, was, was everyone aligned with bringing in effectively a third party around around the table um or was that kind of because I, I could see the and you were talking about succession actually it's a great, great example of like the influence of a third party when you bring uh, when you bring them to the table so we'd love you to talk about kind of how that investment came about and you know very very well respected organization world career we've had uh, a guest from world career on the podcast i believe we've got another one coming on as well um so you know, super credible 
investor in the business. But uh, yeah, talk us through that that period and how that came about. So when we did the MBO from Healthcare at Home, then they remained a shareholder. So I had a third party shareholder right from the start. The problem with specialty pharmacy interest in clinical trials is that most of the drugs in R&D don't make it to the market. So the strategic integration, if you like, of the R&D part of their business with the commercial part of their business is pretty weak. And after a while, several years, MRN and Healthcare at Home had different strategies. And so we were no longer really all that relevant for healthcare at home, and they were happy to uh, sell their portion back. But I, obviously, I say obviously, you know, if you've got a business that's growing, it's very difficult to afford to buy people back. Yeah, your yeah. personal wealth is not bad. I was just about to ask you, were you tempted to buy it yourself? <laughs> Too expensive. I couldn't do it. So I, I literally, I, if anybody knows the healthcare at home history, it's it's had its ups and downs. And it was immediately after one of those downs that they they literally came back to me and said, "That's it. I think we probably need to call it a day." And I'm not I'm not making this up. The day before, my wife had been down at uh, World Korea, um, and she at the time was running our vendor management and our supply chain teams, and had a long-standing, still has a very strong long-standing relationship with World Korea. And she was sitting talking to her account manager in World Korea, and a whole series of senior execs from World Korea started to come in the door to introduce themselves to her. <laughs> and she came home to me and said, I don't know what's going on, but it was very weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then they called us up because we had regular, we were already partners because we had regular calls. They said, Well, you know, are you interested in more investment? And we said no, because we didn't need it. And then I, it was just a few days later that Healthcare at Home decided to call it a day. Uh, and we phoned up World Courier and said, okay, changed my mind. And we went from there, basically. Was it difficult? No, not really. It wasn't that difficult. It was a good deal. And I think one of the things that I would say to anybody who's willing to listen is that you have to go into any deal with your eyes open, okay? But the people I've dealt with at World Courier have been fantastic. We've always been great. And I, and that, that goes right up to Steve Collis at the top, who I literally couldn't believe was willing to talk to me at all. I mean, he runs a $1.150 billion business. <laughs> anyway, I had a couple of conversations with me and I was just amazed that he was even interested in we, we couldn't possibly move the needle on World Courier's, um, you know, revenue or or enterprise value, but um, but they made time. They made time for us, and they were very nice people, and have always dealt with us very honourably and pleasantly. Very good. Well, thank you for for sharing that with such openness. And yeah, everything things happen for a reason, right? That, <laughs> that your wife was having that conversation a couple of days before. Uh, the opportunity came about that you know real fate and let's let's talk about clinical trials generally you know if pre you know you, you mentioned something right at the start which i i jotted down which was you you called 
when you went to Paracel, you called it the, the fast-paced CRO world. Talk us through the change that you have seen in the CRO and clinical trials space from when you, I suppose, started the business or were at Paracel up to the point of COVID. So I'll, I'll, I'll cover COVID separately because I think that's warrants a probably warrants probably an episode on its own i suspect but but how have you seen you know if, if we broadly look at outsourcing and outsourcing has massively expanded in the last 15 years or so you know what has that meant for a fast-growing cro like yourself up to the point of of 2020 that's an interesting question uh, Roman. i think if you go back to when i joined par excel all CROs actually were in them just you know, post-millennium. There was a significant dip in the CRO world fortunes. And I think CROs were, were moving through uh, the early phases of some very difficult times. And during those periods, I think CROs were fundamentally, they would pass a cost on to a customer all the time. It's the safest business model. Uh, you you take a cost, you pass it on. Over the last 23 years, through that period, I would have said the CROs have embraced the requirement to invest in themselves, to invest in their capabilities, with the risk that that will not be bought up by the pharma companies in quite the way that they anticipate. They've become, therefore, more not entrepreneurial because they started out entrepreneurially, but um, they've become less of a pure outsourcing model and more of a partnering style model. They have more more strategic interactions with their customers and I think are more willing to invest in themselves to provide themselves with systems and people and capabilities that will do a better job for their customer than they than they ever were. And as a consequence they have grown really well when the rest of the world has not grown in the same manner as the CRO sector. So I think it's a very successful sector from that point of view. From the point of view of clinical trials overall, innovation comes in lots of guises. Some of it is what you might call paradigm shifting, big ticket stuff. And But most of it is what you might call sustainability issues. It's innovation around what you already do, trying to do it better, more efficiently, more effectively. And I think the big picture innovation opportunities are relatively uncommon. They're relatively infrequent. Looking back over my history, I can probably point to five or six really important things that have changed the clinical trial world fundamentally. And I would say it, CROs and pharma companies take a long time to adopt them. I think that's still true, actually. I don't think it's got much faster. But we did see through that period a growing interest in the technological solutions to clinical trials and a growing in- interest in patient centricity. It was a big movement, really kicked off in 2010, uh, which is, I think, defined a lot of of the elements of R&D since then. And I do feel like that the adoption cycle for that type of innovation has 
gone through the initial peaks now and um, is now coming back out the other side into the more long-term sustainable version of change. On a similar topic then, if we look at change and innovation, talk us through how COVID impacted your business and how it changed MRN as you reflect back on how the business looked at the the back end of 2019 to, to how it looks today. For anyone... We've had many guests on the podcast from so the, the the CDMO sector and within tech companies and testing companies and biotech companies. And we haven't, I think we've only had a handful of CRO companies, but it'd be great to just get an insight into how your business had to adapt and evolve during that period. And it sounds to me like given the agile and I suppose, uh, scrappy nature of your organization, you were already probably on on the journey already and you've been ahead of many of your competitors but just talk us through the the challenges beyond the obvious challenges of you know working from home etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah i mean you're you're absolutely on the money there mrn has been an organization that has is used to growth i think that's quite important so up until 2019 the compound annual growth rate of, of mrn was around about 34 percent from inception so for all those years, we'd grown on average 34% per annum, which means that every two and a half years, you're double the size. And the scale up means you have to reinvent many of your processes and your tools to cope. So after what had been 13 years of, of redevelopment like that, MRM was in quite a good position to go into a higher growth of period. And we grew, I think on average, through the two main years of the pandemic, we grew on average 90% per annum. Yeah. So, but but the world changed. The world changed overnight. And it has its downsides as well as its upsides. Suddenly, our customers were looking at, I don't know, somewhere between 50 and 80% of their clinical trials were going to fail. Um, the sites were closed. Uh, the patients were on drug but couldn't get it. It was, um, we were looking over the edge of a cliff. But MRN had no idea. We, we didn't have any idea what was going to happen. We didn't know whether we were going to have to close down and furlough everybody or whether or not we would be a one of the success stories. As it turned out, uh, the pandemic was good to us. But the uncertainty in everybody at MRN was was profound for several months until we realized that our customers were going to be trying to keep the clinical trials that we'd been operating going. The people who buy from, who bought from us, I think this is a really important point. The people who bought from us shifted from understanding the return on investment that we offered to a binary decision, survive or terminate the trial. And that environment was what most of the DCT type companies and companies like us who grew a lot during the pandemic, um, that that's their history because most of them had only been around a year or so before 2019. And as the pandemic came to an end, 
the return on investment element came back. And many of the companies that had grown just before the pandemic and had grown a lot during the pandemic were now facing the fact that they actually had to prove that they were worth having when the trial could run without them. And that's been the trickiest part of the whole pandemic, I think, for the sector, is trying to get to grips with the change in attitudes in the customers between survival of the trials or an assessment on return on investment. Wow, and gosh, I was just smiling when you when you mentioned the growth that you'd been on and that how it almost better prepared you for yeah. the impact of the pandemic. And it's almost an identical story to, to one of my businesses remarketing in exactly the same way we'd grown quickly for a decade and we doubled in size almost in uh, during the period of COVID, which we just, similar to yourself, you know, we right place, right time. And we had been innovating and our services were aligned to where the market was going. So it really is fascinating to hear your own story and being on the front line of that as well. And I'm conscious of time because we only have five minutes left and I, I could genuinely talk to you and hear your stories and get your kind of uh, take on the, the market for hours at end. But let's let's have one eye on, on the future then. You, you mentioned, I love the phrase you said that innovation comes in, in lots of guises before because I, I'm a big believer that innovation can be kind of iterative and daily and it doesn't have to be these step change big tick items as you, as you call them graham but as you look at the the market broadly obviously you know you have various things happening in our market right now in addition to the kind of macro factors around you know inflation and interest rates you know you've got biotech funding pretty tight you know big pharma consolidating in places and and you know you've got the cro space my understanding is it's continually consolidated and you know you guys are one of those kind of independent ish players that can still forge a name for himself in the market talk us through what the next few years looks like in your opinion from a, i suppose a, a market perspective but also what it means for for your business mrn which i appreciate is a huge question <laughs> <laughs> well it, well it is okay and it's always dangerous isn't it to look into the crystal ball because you know, it's kind of a bit cloudy in there, isn't it? And uh, <laughs> if we knew what it was going to be, we'd all be very wealthy men and women. It's like one of those snow globes where you give it a shake and you can't really see what it is. So, But have a shot at nevertheless. And I suppose, you know, within your area of control as well, what, what life looks like in the next few years for your own organisation. But obviously, you know, that'll be relative to the market as well. I think it's a very interesting, very fluid time for the industry. The key development, I think, that is happening now and will happen over the next few years is that, the certainly in my sector, is that the customers are going into what I've called a normalization process. DCT as a concept, I think, is flawed because we shouldn't and really most people don't define clinical trials by the tools we use to run them. You know, we no longer talk about an EDC clinical trial. It's just a clinical trial. It's got EDC built into it. Clinical trials have to absorb the solutions and tools that are made available to them in order to get the best possible outcome. 
And that's what's going to happen now. I think a lot of the technology tools are struggling to globalize. It's very difficult to provide technology support in all the countries that need to to have it, in all the languages that need to be provided for all the patients and for all the sites and for all the vendors. This is not easy. And I think the technology companies are struggling. I think the clinical companies, the new ones, were not ready for scale up and they learned a lot of difficult compliance and regulatory questions whilst they were going through the pandemic and many of those are falling by the wayside. The technologists, I believe, are moving more towards... In fact, this is true for for all of us. We're moving more towards the core elements and requirements of all clinical trials. Um, We've always been looking for speed. We've always been looking for accuracy and compliance. And we've always been looking for end-to-end data integrity. The technology businesses are moving towards the end-to-end data integrity objective because that's what the customers want. And that's not necessarily patient-centric. If you imagine saying to a patient, well, you can come into the site and give me your information verbally and I'll write it down for you. Or here you go, I'll give you an iPad or a phone. Please put all your information onto these pages on that device. You're just giving them work. Patients have just haven't been asked to work harder. They don't they don't want to do that. Now they quite like some of the upsides. They're not, you know, I don't think the technology's misplaced, but it's it is misplaced to think of it as reducing the workload on the patient. It, it doesn't. The fact that they don't have to come into the site is the thing that reduces the workload on the patient. And you can therefore imagine if you send a nurse into a site and they've got the device. Then you've got the best of both worlds, haven't you? Because the patient has, sorry, the nurse goes to the patient's home and you've got the best of both worlds. You you don't have to go to the site and you don't have to fill in all the data. And I think if we get a better handle on patient centricity, we'll start to integrate these tools more effectively in the long term. And I think that's the next step, Robin. I think we're going to see a lot of that sustaining innovation, grinding out the improvements that come from long-term lessons from the marketplace. And I expect that to last for another another five to 10 years. Really pleased we've got your kind of perspective on that topic. So I think it just brings to life a lot of the work that many of our listeners do in the sector and the, the kind of impact on the patient. And that's the piece where you guys are, are heavily involved in. Add one final question, and this is probably driven by many of the conversations that we've had on the show in the last 12 months or so you know, particularly in the rare disease area where we're getting, you know, well-funded, smaller biotech companies looking to solve, uh, you know, patient problems for unmet needs that have gone unmet for, for, for many years. And I suppose what we've never had on is, is someone with your perspective is, you know, where you've got an interesting uh, medicine that's coming through trials and you then have to help source whether it be diverse patients from different populations or different countries or with specific, I suppose, disease diseases that allow them to be tested for these drug products. How has that impacted you guys or continue to impact you guys in terms of the wide range of patients that you have to then source to be able to run trials on behalf of, of clients with slightly more evolved and differing needs to, say, 20 years ago? 
the interesting thing about our model is that the physicians, the PIs are still critical to our model. The sites have to work within our model and they find the patients. So if you can find the sites, that then they can find the patients. Ah, I see. And they then refer those patients to home healthcare. And what we allow them to do is to reach so much further into their patient population than they would be able to. Mostly in terms of, well, there are two key freedoms really that we're offering people. The first one is they can be seen where they want so they don't have to go into the site all the time. That means they could live a lot further away. But they can also be seen when they want. And something like 80% of our visits don't happen at the same time as the clinic for that clinical trial is happening at their site. They happen in the evenings, at the weekends, other days of the week. And the impact of the capacity to do that for your patient population means the PIs can reach out to many more of their patients to take part in the clinical trial. And that's what drives the recruitment. The other element of this is, I mean, diversity is a very big topic at the moment. You have to think about the diversity of the patient population. We can do something about that and, and other types of DCT can do something about that because we can look after a patient wherever they live, which means they don't have to travel into the site. And if they are living in downtown Chicago, they don't have to travel to uptown Chicago to take part in the clinical trial that's happening at the very nice hospital up there. Thank you very much. Whereas the one in downtown Chicago may not be taking part in that clinical trial and doesn't have such an interest in the revenue that comes from clinical trials. But their local patient population is therefore poorly served for it. So you can reach much further and bring different populations into your trial, but only if you bring in the PIs who are going to see those patients. Well, that's a, a great place, I think, to end today's discussion, Graham. I, I was really pleased that you accepted my invitation to come on the show. I knew you'd bring a kind of completely different perspective, both in terms of your CRO experience, but also your entrepreneurial journey. You've built a fantastic business. Uh, and congratulations for embedding your family in that business and, and taking them all on the journey as a family man. I think that is a, a truly marvelous, marvelous kind of a, a accomplishment because it's not an easy thing, I suspect, to pull off. And also your global growth and the impact you have on patient populations all over the world is is fantastic. And that's why we all work in this sector. So thank you so much for making the time and being a guest on Molecule to Market. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And that was Mr. Graham Wiley. What a terrific guest he was. Uh, it's really interesting to get the perspective of someone growing and running a CRO um, on the show because we don't get many guests from that type of the or that side of the market very often. So really, really well timed in terms of what's happening. Uh, you know, some of the takeaways I had from today's episode. Uh, for any of you in a kind of in-house role within a pharma biotech company, you know, his transition and how he talked about his transition to Paracel, I thought was, was was super interesting. And 
you know, if you are commercially minded or client oriented in some way, then that type of role, uh, you know, on the services or vendor side might be something worth pursuing. I found uh, his description of the MBO, the brutal experience, um, fascinating in, in terms of, you know, going through something like that with a, an organization and becoming a spinoff and how then leaving some equity in that business for that partner can have an impact down the line. But ultimately, it seemed like it worked out quite well for Graham and his team in terms of, you know, being able to then sell that equity to World Korea further down the line and having a great partner like that. Um, great to just get his take on the kind of global clinical trials space in particular, obviously the decentralized part of the market that they tend to focus on and, and how the market has evolved over the last couple of decades. And, you know, towards the back end as well, I really, I thought he was very open about what might happen in the future and particularly enjoyed his kind of focus on iterative and, uh, you know, innovation coming in lots of guises versus these big ticket ones. Uh, he did mention AI, which was something I thought may come up in conversation today, but maybe one uh, for, for next time. You can't help but love the family business aspect of MRN. It makes it such an interesting organization and fair play to Graham for not only building a fantastic global business, which I genuinely I aspire to replicate in my own world, but doing so with your wife and kids. Uh, I mean, I love my wife and kids, but I couldn't think of anything worse, to be honest with you. But Graham seems to have pulled that off really, really well. Uh, and the final thing that I took uh, from today's kind of show was just how that kind of growth and agile nature of being a small, fast-growing organization in the outsourcing space can really set you up for being better prepared for the unknown. And in, in this case, it was obviously COVID and the impact it had, had on MRN. So yeah, I really, really enjoyed the episode, as you can probably tell from the length of the show, um, longer than usual, but I am not uh, feeling guilty about that at all because I'm sure you enjoyed it as well. Thanks to my team, as always, for pulling today's podcast together. You guys are awesome, and I could not do this without you. If you like today's episode or podcast, then please like it and subscribe and share it with a colleague, and I will see you very soon. Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website at Molecule to Market Pod or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on Molecule to Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.